Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the first chapter of the Apostle Peter's second letter. Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one. This morning we will be returning to our study, our exposition of Second Peter. If you're here and perhaps new to the Bible, 2 Peter is towards the end of the New Testament, just five books before the book of Revelation. Well, since it's been about 10 Sundays since we've been in 2 Peter, I'm going to begin by reading from the beginning of chapter 1. Today we're going to be focusing on verses 12 through 15, and I've entitled this message, Awakened by Way of Reminder. Awakened by Way of Reminder. Which is taken right out of verse 13, by the way. And so, as always, it's with a profound sense of privilege and honor and gratitude this morning that I invite you to hear and heed the words of the true and living God this morning. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right. As long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Grace community, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the dangers that lies at the root of almost every fall and almost every descent into sin 
in the Christian life is the danger of forgetfulness, the danger of forgetfulness. We sin because we forget who God is. We forget who we are. We forget what he's called us to. We forget his promises to us. We forget and therefore we fall and we sin. Because of the remaining influence of indwelling sin, we as Christian believers have a tendency to remember the things that we ought to forget and to forget the things that we ought to remember. That's part of living in the flesh, sadly. This is true of Christians and non-Christians alike, by the way. And it was true of the people of God, even in the Old Testament. In spite of all the glories and all the wonders that God displayed, from the parting of the Red Sea to the manna in the wilderness, to the water from the rock, to the defeat of Jericho, and even hearing the voice of God thundering from Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, the Old Testament essentially ends on this note, from Isaiah 17:10 where God says to Israel for you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge the language of forgetfulness is even stronger in the book of uh, book of Jeremiah who prophesied in the nation of Judah from around 627 BC until sometime after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC listen to Jeremiah 2:32 Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Jeremiah 13, 25, you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. Jeremiah 18, 15, my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. If we go a little bit further in the Old Testament, we even hear this language from the prophet Hosea. Hosea 8.14, for Israel has forgotten his maker. Well, this danger of forgetfulness ran throughout the time of the Old Testament, throughout the time of the New Testament, and this danger still threatens us today. I heard a statistic that really shocked me, but also made me feel okay as a pastor Basically, and after, after an hour of hearing a lecture or a speech or a sermon, people tend to forget up to 90% of what was said. Hence the reason we return here week after week. Chances are you're not going to remember this sermon a month from now. But in the same way, you don't remember what you ate a month ago. But that food sustained you that day and the following day and that week. Food is intended to sustain us, and that's why we come back every week to partake of this heavenly manna, the word of God. So God knows our tendency to forget the things that we ought to remember and to remember the things that we ought to forget. And I really believe that's one of the reasons that he's ordained this day every week to return and to hear his voice in the scriptures. Well, as we turn our attention this morning to verses 12 through 15 of 2 Peter 1, Peter is aware of the danger of forgetfulness. And so as he prepares to transition to verses 16 through 21, where he's going to be focusing on the ground of saving knowledge, namely the scriptures, he gives a brief summary of why he's writing this letter. And he's writing so that we don't forget the things that we ought to remember. 
Now, it's been a little while since we've been in Second Peter, and so I'm going to give you a quick overview and an outline of the book, just so that you're able to make sense of where we're at today, this morning. I want to start big and then bring it in close to where we're at today. The second letter of Peter is about two things, diligence and discernment. Peter is writing to stir up the church to be diligent with regard to holiness and to be discerning when it comes to heretics or false teachers. And just to give you a breakdown of chapter one, chapter one is all about the saving knowledge within us. Chapter two is all about the false teachers among us. And chapter three is about the blessed hope before us. And as we zero in on chapter one, where Peter's expounding on the saving knowledge within us, the chapter can be divided into five sections. In verses one and two, he focuses on the source and the substance of this saving knowledge. He says that the source of it is the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who brought us this knowledge by way of bestowing upon us the gift of saving faith. And as far as the substance of this saving knowledge, it's, according to Peter, God and Jesus, our Lord. It's a knowledge that has to do with the triune God. That's part one of chapter one. The second aspect of chapter one is verses three and four, where Peter underscores the sufficiency of this saving knowledge, the sufficiency of this saving knowledge. It's knowledge that gives us everything we need for life and godliness here and now. Thirdly, in verses five through 11, Peter focuses in on the assurance that comes from this saving knowledge, the assurance that comes with it. Fourthly, where we're at today, 12 through 15, we find ourselves considering the importance of remembering this saving knowledge, the importance of remembering this saving knowledge. And then fifthly and lastly, in verses 16 through 21, Peter explains the ground of this saving knowledge, the ground of it, as he's going to talk about the nature of the scriptures. And I'm calling this knowledge saving knowledge for a reason, because those whose eyes and hearts are opened to receiving this knowledge, they experience God's power of salvation. It's a knowledge that saves. It's a knowledge that sets people free. It's a knowledge that brings people to God. That's why it's saving knowledge. And so as we come to verses 12 through 15 this morning, Peter takes the time to explain to his readers the importance of remembering this saving knowledge. Let's read, verse, let's read these verses again, 12 through 15. This is our target this morning. Peter says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. I want us to see and consider four aspects of Peter's character that bleed through these words in these four verses, because they serve as an example for us. They serve as an example for us as Christian believers to walk in. These verses reveal, first of all, Peter's sense of purpose, his sense of kindness, his sense of urgency, 
And fourthly, they reveal his sense of concern for the future of the church. And so I want to begin by calling your attention, first of all, this morning to his sense of purpose. I want you to notice the first part of verse 12. He says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. I intend, I purpose, I am ready to remind you of these qualities. Now, the word qualities there is really things in the Greek. It's not qualities. It's, he's referring to everything he's mentioned so far. I want to remind you of these things. I'm purposed, I'm, I'm intent on reminding you of these things. But he begins by this word, therefore, which means that he's calling our attention to everything he has stated thus far. That's verses one through 11, where he talks about the source of our saving knowledge and the sufficiency of this saving knowledge that we have all things pertaining to life and godliness already given to us upon our conversion to Christ. When we came to him and were filled with the spirit, he gave us a sufficiency that would last for all of this life. He blessed us, to use Ephesians language, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I read this morning in Psalm 34 that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. We have all that we need for life and godliness. In light of all this, he says, in light of the fact that you can have the assurance of your salvation, that you can secure for yourself a fruitful life and an effective life as you supplement your faith with virtue and virtue and knowledge and knowledge and self-control and love. You can know that you are among God's elect, which is why he says, be diligent to confirm your calling and your election. And at the end of it all, verse 11, in this way, there will be richly provided for you an abundant entrance, a rich entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, the Christian life essentially ends with an, ab- an abundant, a rich, a lavish entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, where we hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's a glorious entrance in to the kingdom. And in light of all this, he says, I intend, I purpose, I've made up my mind that as long as I'm in this body, I'm going to remind you of these things. That's his sense of purpose. He had a goal. He had an aim. He knew what he was called to do, and he was resolved to do it. You remember that this purpose really came from after the resurrection, when our Lord Jesus singled out Peter, after those three denials, Jesus restores him three times. And he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds by, yes, Lord, I know you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And finally, the last one, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And each time Jesus gives him a purpose. He commissions him. Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep, feed my lambs. In other words, shepherd my people. As I go back to the Father, I want you to shepherd my people. That's why he's filled with this sense of purpose here. And the purpose is what? Look at there in verse 12. To remind you of these things. To remind you. This was his aim. This was his purpose. He he understood the importance of 
reminding because he knew the dangers of forgetting. God knows how forgetful we are as a people. As I mentioned, just a few examples from the Old Testament. They were good at remembering the worthless things, the vain things, the damning things, and then forgetting the weighty things, the significant things, the substantial things. What we see in Peter here is a good pattern, by the way, for a faithful pastor or minister. He is not one to bring new truth to the pulpit. He's not one to bring interesting things, interesting, fun facts. He's called to remind people of what they already know. He's called to remind people of what God has already said. What we have in this book that we call the Bible is nothing new. What Solomon said in his day is really true of the nature of God's revelation. There's nothing new under the sun. And so as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the business of the church and of preaching is not to present us with new and interesting ideas. It is rather to go on reminding us of certain fundamental eternal truths. That's what you need to look for. If you move on from this place, you need someone who's going to remind you of the truth of Scripture again and again, week after week, because we need to be reminded of it. Peter's sense of purpose here is an example to us. He knew what he was called to do. That's important because a lot of Christians kind of walk around aimlessly, just kind of existing every day. Get up, read my Bible, make my coffee, and just kind of linger throughout the day. Friend, just like Peter had a purpose, you have a purpose. It's to make disciples by bringing them the gospel. It's to see those disciples eventually brought in and to be baptized. And then from that point forward, to see that those disciples are maturing in obeying everything Christ has commanded. So it's not just a tag, you're it, evangelism. It's tag, you're it. Let's study the scriptures. Let's go through Romans together. Let's go through John together. Let's go through Luke together. We're called to invest in people. That's the work of the Great Commission. The work of the Great Commission is not merely evangelism. That's only one aspect of it. It's ongoing, self-emptying discipleship, one-on-one with people. Peter had a sense of purpose, as we should as well. We ought to, like Peter, commit to helping people to remember what they already know. You see, we're tempted sometimes to bring something new, something fascinating, something interesting. Now, listen, you can learn something new about the old, old scriptures, but it's not necessarily new revelation. It's not necessarily something that's never been discussed in the history of the church. There may be a fresh insight, but it's not really something new. Friends, we should be overflowing with gratitude that God, not only internally, has given us all things we need for life and godliness, but externally, in the word of God, he's given us all things that we need for life and godliness. There's there's an internal sufficiency and an external sufficiency that we have in the scriptures. And our business is to make those scriptures known in love, in kindness, in gentleness, in boldness, and then to continue to remind those that we are discipling of these old, old truths that are ever new in the way that they're able to Refresh us and give us life each day. Notice next that Peter not only reveals his sense of purpose, but he reveals his sense of kindness. His sense of kindness. Look at verse 12. 
Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Do you see that Peter's not condescending in the way he is responding to these believers? He says, I'm reminding you of these things because you know them already. The truth that you have has established you. You've been rooted and grounded in the truth. He doesn't speak in a rude or condescending manner. Do you not know? Have you not heard? What happened to what you learned? Why are you so easily forgetting? There's no sense of that here. Kindness acknowledges grace in the, mark, in, 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 in the lives of believers. See, Peter understood that these were genuine believers. He's not doubting their salvation. He's not calling them into question. And I say that because some preaching can come across as very punchy, very in your face. That Every time you listen to a certain preacher, you're always doubting your salvation. That's not Peter. Peter understood these people. He knew, maybe he didn't know them personally, but he knew of them from reports that they, they knew these things. They've been instructed in basic Christian doctrine and they were established. They weren't just surface Christians. They were established. They were rooted and grounded. They were like those in the parable of the sower who held fast to the truth with an honest and open heart in patience and they were bearing fruit. They were established. That's important for us to, to note here because he doesn't speak down to them. He acknowledges that he's aware of their spiritual condition. Listen, in your interactions with other believers, are you quick to think in your mind about all the ways in which they're deficient? Or are you quick to say, this individual, this brother knows the truth and they love the truth. And I praise God for that. There's a kindness that we can learn from Peter here in acknowledging someone's spiritual condition. This should remind us of John, by the way. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, John says, but you church, you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Same reasoning as Peter here. Same line of reasoning. I write to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. And you know that no lie is of the truth. It also reminds us of Paul in Philippians, where he says in Philippians 3.1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. You see, we can learn something here that a good teacher, a good preacher, a good discipler is one who reminds people of what they already know. Similar to Jude, verse five, where Jude says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, although you once fully knew it, there was need for reminder there. Well, notice the next phrase he says, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. In other words, they didn't just have a basic knowledge of Christian fundamentals. They were established in these things. The word established here is much stronger than the first word to know. And, and it pictures a knowledge as having been confirmed and strengthened by experience, imparting to the individual an inner character of stability. And what's interesting is that Peter uses the perfect tense here, which denotes an abiding condition, a continuing condition. You are established. You'll continue to be established because of God's work of grace in your heart. You're rock solid. Your roots go deep. He acknowledges that. These people were well 
grounded Christians. They were like trees with deep roots. These believers' roots of knowledge went deep and produced a tree that is able to withstand the blasting winds and the scorching heat. They were established. John MacArthur writes, they had, given, they had given evidence by their faithfulness that the true gospel was strongly present with them. Peter affirmed them without doubt as genuine, maturing believers. He could have echoed Paul's words to the Colossians. You previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. These believers were established in the truth, anchored in the truth, deeply rooted in the truth. And so like Peter, we should never be afraid to acknowledge the evidence of God's spirit in the lives of his people. This isn't necessarily flattery. Sometimes we think, well, if I compliment this person too much of what the Lord's doing in their lives, they might become proud and arrogant, or they might become thankful and praise God all the more, right? There's always that. It's an encouragement. It's not flattery. But we also learn from this text that it's our duty to, one, know the truth, but also to then establish ourselves in the truth. Again, this is that aspect of the Great Commission, right? Not only bringing them the gospel, but then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the establishment of these disciples, to teach them to observe all that he has commanded. And notice he uses the word truth here. The truth that you have, though you know these things and are established in the truth that you have, the truth that has come to you, the truth. The truth about God, the truth about humanity and this world. You see, this truth is, was and is embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. The spirit of God who comes to us is known as the spirit of truth because he opens our eyes to the truth. He bears fruit in our lives by the truth. The spirit of God does not work apart from the word of God. Where you have churches where the Bible can be closed the entire service, but yet you're hearing about the moving of the Spirit in the place. I can guarantee you that the moving of the Spirit is not going on in that place if the Bible is not being expounded and applied to the lives and hearts of believers. He's the Spirit of truth, not the Spirit of chaos, not the Spirit of emotion. He's the Spirit of truth. We have the truth. Let us know the truth. Let us soak in the truth. Let us establish ourselves in the truth so that we become like that tree next to the streams of water that bears its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither. But in all that we do, we prosper. Why? Because we're established in the truth. There's not just a surface knowledge, right? This is a deep knowledge that we are called to pursue. Thirdly, we note here not only his sense of purpose and his sense of kindness, but we note his sense of urgency. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. He says, I think it right. 
He considered it a righteous thing to do, and rightly so, because our Lord Jesus had commissioned Peter to tend the sheep, to feed the sheep, to shepherd the flock. So it's right in that he's doing what Christ has called him to do. It would be unrighteous for Peter to just kind of coast in his old age and to be like, you know what? The Lord is sovereign. He'll build his church. I was there when he said that there on Caesarea Philippi. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. He'll, he, he's sovereign. He'll do what he's going to do. But by now, I've made it believe, by the way, that Peter is in his 70s when he's writing this. But Peter says, I think it's right. It's a righteous thing. As long as I'm in this body, notice the next thing. To stir you up by way of reminder. You see, Peter knew his days were numbered, which is why he's writing with a sense of urgency. A sense of urgency. I use the word urgent because urgent means requiring immediate action or attention. It's urgent, something urgent. You see, he realized he wouldn't always be in this body. Some of your translations might say an earthly dwelling. Skenoma is the word for tent. And the imagery is drawn from Old Testament nomads, basically moving around in tents, in animal skins, right? Tents moving around the land. Peter gives us insight into what our bodies actually are. It's just an earthly dwelling, right? Paul used the same word, by the way, in 2 Corinthians when he talked about if we are ever not in this tent, we have an eternal home in the heavens. Your body is just a tent. It's not a castle. It's not an abiding permanent house. It's just a tent that you live in temporarily as an exile, as a sojourner in this life. And yes, while bodily exercise is profitable, godliness is profitable that much more, as Timothy, as we read in Timothy, First Timothy. Well, knowing this, that we are just temporarily in this tent, in this body, that should produce a sense of urgency in us. We're not always going to have, one, our body, but two, the help that we have in these bodies. For those of you who are young, this speaks volumes to you, that while you have strength and while you have energy, be about the Lord's work. Be about the Father's business. You're not always going to have that strength. You're not always going to be able to wake up at certain hours of the morning to get started. You're not always going to be who you are in terms of your physical energy and and, and emotionally and mentally. Our, Our bodies, these tents are wearing out. They're decaying. Paul says that elsewhere. They're subject to decay and corruption as in Romans 8. So while you have strength, while you have energy, serve the Lord. Be abounding in the work of the Lord. He says, as long as I'm in this body, this earthly dwelling, my task is, notice, to stir you up by way of reminder. This describes Peter's task here. This is his aim. Notice that he's not just writing the church to see that they are protected and insulated against the false teachers in chapter two. He's saying, I'm writing to stir you up. The word to stir up means to wake up completely. It's a compound form of the verb diagero, which means to arouse completely, 
to wake up completely, to, to thoroughly awaken from lethargy, from, from drowsiness, from sleepiness. This is the goal of the word of God and the spirit of God to arouse us, to stir us up. This is a good test, by the way, in terms of the local church. You all, under the ministry of the word, should experience a sense of stirring every week. It may not be to the same degree, but the word of God should hit you in a way that you are aroused. You are awakened from sleep, spiritual sleep, spiritual slumber, spiritual lethargy, spiritual laziness. That's why God has ordained this day, because he knows his people are susceptible to sleepiness. I'm talking primarily spiritual sluggardness, right? Spiritual laziness, spiritual lethargy. We're, we're, we're prone to that. The world's impact, that, that's the world's goal is to make us sleep and yawn over the things of God, to just coast in the things of God, to just coast in the will of God. God wants to stir us up. That's why in Hebrews 10, in the same context of not forsaking the assembling of the saints, he says, consider on that day how to stir up one another to what? To love and to good works. In other words, to stir, one, to stir up one another to love God, to love one another, and to commit yourself to a life of good works. In other words, a life of glorifying God. That's the goal of Peter reminding these folks here and reminding us to stir us up, to awaken us by way of reminder. Again, awakening does not come with new revelation. Awakening does not come with new insights, new truth, so to speak. Now, awakening, great awakening has always come about when a people soak afresh in the old truths of God's word. That's how awakening happens. Week in and week out, and also those occasional moments in the history of the church where there's been great awakenings. It's not because Jonathan Edwards brought something new to the table. He brought to his people in that day the old truth regarding God, man, Christ, and our response to God and Christ. To stir you up, Peter says, by way of reminder. By the way, Jonathan Edwards understood this to be the goal of preaching. Listen to what he writes in the 1700s. I don't think ministers are to be blamed for raising the affections of their hearers too high. If that which they are affected with be only that which is worthy of affection and their affections are not raised beyond a proportion to their importance or worthiness or affection. He says, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as possibly I can, provided that they are affected with nothing but truth. See, Christians, we can become sluggish, we can become lazy, we can become lethargic, we can become sleepy in our spiritual walk with Christ. And it's the word of God that brings us and awakens us. Same word is used, by the way, when the disciples were um, in the boat wanting to awaken Jesus. And when the waves themselves, right, that, that storm awoke, that storm was stirring up. It's the same word that was used there. You see, maybe perhaps Peter is remembering something very personal in his past here. In Gethsemane, 
Jesus said, watch and pray, right? And yet he found his disciples asleep, asleep, Matthew 26. But this goes to show that faithful shepherds, faithful pastors like Peter understand that their main role is to remind the church of all that God has done and all that God has said in his word. Nothing new to preach. And this is a challenge, by the way, for guys like myself, right? Who, I mean, my goal is to take you through the word of God. And I have to be able to say that over the course of years in a way that is not repetitive and Oh, he's going he's gonna to give this illustration again. He's going to give that same story again, and you tune it out. No, we have to be able to communicate old truth in fresh ways because that's how we retain these things in our minds. To remind without saying the same things in the same way, which is why this is why preachers need to be growing in their knowledge, growing in their walk with Christ, growing and bearing fruit in their own lives. And notice the motivation here. Peter says, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. In other words, Peter understood by now in his 70s that his time in his body, the time in his tent is coming to an end. That's why we have this sense of urgency. And he ends with saying, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Now, what is he talking about? Remember, in the gospel, according to John, chapter 21, there after the resurrection, after Peter is restored three times, after Jesus, Peter is commissioned by Jesus to shepherd the flock, Jesus tells him this, truly, truly, I say to you, when you grow old, or sorry, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself, clothe yourself, and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, You will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, John gives us some insight here. John says, now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. See, 40 years prior, Peter was told by Jesus that the way in which he would die would be by crucifixion. Somebody else would stretch his hands out and take him where he did not want to go, a clear reference to crucifixion and Peter's martyrdom. In fact, we read in Eusebius' ecclesiastical history in chapter three that Peter was crucified on his own request upside down because he felt unworthy to die exactly the way his master died. You see, this teaches us that Christ knows the exact moment of our death and the way in which we will die. And that's comforting to me, that should comfort you, that the God who controls the universe knows and has determined the time of your death. You see, in heaven's eyes, there's no such thing as an accidental death. It happens when exactly God wants it to happen. That might be hard for us to understand, but that's the truth of scripture. He holds our lives in his hand. He knows when we'll die, he knows how we'll die, and it won't be a surprise to him. And so Peter here, we see, we see and we hear his sense of urgency. He says, I'm not always going to be in this body. And so I find it right. As long as I'm here, as long as I have breath to stir you up, to awaken you, to, to awaken you, to arouse you out of your slumber by way of reminder. The reminder of the source of 
saving knowledge, of the substance of saving knowledge, of the sufficiency of the saving knowledge, and of the assurance that comes from this saving knowledge. I want to stir you up. I want to remind you of these things. You see, there's a few things we can learn from Peter's urgency here. Number one, Christians should grow more passionate and zealous and fruitful as they age. Can you believe this man? 40 years after being told that when he's old, another would tie his hands basically, stretch him out and take him where he didn't wanna go. And yet for 40 years, this man did not cease from serving the Lord. He didn't cool over the years. He didn't diminish, he didn't decrease in his zeal over the years. This man viewed the Christian life as having no place of retirement in terms of serving the Lord. You don't, you don't retire from serving the Lord. You might not have the strength you once had, but you don't retire ever from serving the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians age, we should be growing more passionate, more zealous, more affectionate. Why? Because the more we know, the more we should be affected by that truth, as Jonathan Edwards says. Our affections should be raised with the degree of truth that we know. And yet, sadly, that's not always the case, is it? We find that Christians in their old age many times grow more bitter and cynical and depressed about the world. Well, friends, you're not to be looking at this world you're to be looking for the world to come. The new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells, where we will be with God, where we will dwell with him and we will see him with our, our own eyes. You see, because they know that their end is coming. And like 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, they ought to be steadfast and immovable. Listen, always abounding, not decreasing, not diminishing, but always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, their labor is not in vain. We're not to decrease. We're not to decelerate. We're not to stall. We're not to slow down in the work of the Lord. But like Peter here, we are to abound in the work of the Lord. Again, you may not have the energy you have, you had when you were younger, but if you know the truth and you're established in the truth, you have a voice, use it. You have the ability to write or type, use it. And while you have your body, use it. This also communicates something to us who are young. I say that in quotations. I realize I'm gonna be 40 soon, four years, but maybe you feel kind of old this week. No offense, by the way, to those of you who are above 40. But just sobering reality that we are getting older, that time is going by. And this also tells us, like I was saying, that we ought to do what we can to take care of these tents that we have, right? You may not have a Coleman tent. You might have one from like Harbor Freight or something, but you are to take care of the tent that you have, to take care of it. To not damage it, to not abuse it. Do what you can. I'm not saying you have to become a a Navy SEAL or anything, but you need to take care of this body that you have. Why? Because it's not your body. The Lord is for the body and the body is for the Lord, as Paul says. He gave you your tent. Take care of it. The Lord is for the body and the body is for the Lord. Your body exists for him. It exists for serving him. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He has given you. It's not your own, so take care of it. Think about it. Your body is the one medium you have for communicating the truth that has eternal ramifications. 
the one shot you have. It's the one canvas you have. It's the one pen you have. It's the one paintbrush you have to communicate the truth of God that, can have, that, that has eternal ramifications for those who receive that truth. It's huge. And so we are to understand here from Peter the brevity of life, the shortness of life. Listen to Job 7, verse 6. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Remember that my life is a breath. Job 9, 25. My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. Job 14, verse 1. Man who is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. Psalm 39, verse 5. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. We need to understand the brevity of life. We're not permanent. Psalm 89, 47. Remember how short my time is. We read in Psalm 90, verse 5, You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. The grass, they are like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. And so the natural prayer of the psalmist there, Moses, who understands the brevity of life, is in Psalm 90, verse 12, where he says, So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. That's not just Old Testament reality. This is New Testament reality. James, the brother of our Lord, says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that vanishes, that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. That's often not quoted when people quote that verse. They often say, well, we should say if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. No, before that, if the Lord wills, we will live. If the Lord wills, we will live. If the Lord wills tomorrow, I will live. If the Lord wills tomorrow, you will live. Your life is fleeting. It's like a vapor. And so we learn from Peter here his sense of urgency. And lastly, as we come to the last point this morning, we can learn from his sense of concern for the future of the church. You've seen his sense of purpose, his sense of kindness, his sense of urgency, and we note, fourthly, his sense of concern for the future of the church. Notice he says, And I, verse 15, will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. You see, Peter has a concern here, not just for right now, but for the future, which is why he says, I'm going to do everything I can so that after I'm gone, you're able to recall these things. After I'm gone, i.e. in the future, you're able to recall these things. We see Peter's energy again in these first few words when he says, and I will make every effort. That means I will show all diligence. I will apply all diligence. Peter isn't slowing down. He's being diligent to remind Christians of the truth. 
so that after his departure, the church is able to recall these things. In other words, Peter reveals his Christ-like love for the church here, which doesn't just consist of his present love. It consists of his future love for the sheep that he's been called to shepherd. He's concerned for the future well-being of the church. You see, selfish pastors and selfish Christians think only of their lives here and now without a single concern for investing in others who will continue to carry the torch of truth after they are gone. Ask yourself this morning, are you more concerned for the here and now or are you more concerned for being right in the here and now so that you secure a good future for those who will come after you? Perhaps it's your children. Perhaps it's those that you're discipling, those that you're evangelizing in the workplace, those in your family, those in life, period. You see, I hate to use the word legacy because that's become such a modern, hipster, Christianese word, right? Legacy church and all this stuff, right? But Peter really is leaving a legacy here. His heart is set on leaving something behind that's going to be beneficial to the next generation. Peter knows he's departing soon. And he wants the church to be able to recall these things. And notice that what we're doing 2,000 years later is the fulfillment of Peter's desire here. We are recalling these things 2,000 years after Peter departed in his tent. Or from his tent, I should say. The word recall here is the word remember. By the way, the word departure here is the word exodus. Peter was about to make his exodus out of this world and into the promised land. And you and I are to view our death as an exodus. We're being delivered through the pain and through the suffering and through the sin in this life, being brought to a better country, a better land. You and I are and will experience a grand and glorious exodus out of this world and into the world to come. Notice here also that Peter, like Paul and the other apostles, isn't laboring to be remembered either. He doesn't say, I'm doing everything I can so that you remember me when I'm gone. No, there's a difference between wanting to be remembered and wanting people to remember the truth that you're leaving behind. You see, all of us will die and will be forgotten. But the truth of God will never be forgotten. The word of God is not bound, as Paul says. We might be bound by death eventually and will be, but the truth of God is not bound. The truth of God will continue on past our exodus out of this world. We're to remember that. We're to labor, labor not to be remembered, but to have the truth that we've communicated remembered. It's a sweet thing to live and die and to preach the gospel and be forgotten and have the gospel remembered to those that we influenced. You see, this serves as an example to both pastors and non-pastors. What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? For those of you who are parents, what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind to your children? Is it merely a good education? Is it merely a good college education, a good college degree, things that are not bad in themselves? You ought to be laboring that much more to anchor them in the truth, the saving truth of Christ. Again, it's been said that so many people focus on how to teach their children to catch a baseball and yet never teach them how to understand the truth of Scripture. Are you establishing the truth yourself? If not, how can you establish others in the truth 
Are you walking in the truth? Are you loving the truth? Are you delighting in the truth now? Now, as we come to an end this morning, I want to leave you with something Jesus said in John chapter 9. As he's going about healing, teaching, he says this in 9.4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. There was a solid Christian in history who etched on his watch. Every time he looked at his watch, he etched the words, the night cometh. It was a reminder that night is coming when no one can work. What is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about the time of death. While it is day, while we have life, he says we must do what we've been called to do by the Father. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, Jesus was speaking of his own ministry, but that serves as an example to those of us who are following in his steps to realize that right now it's day. And we don't, you don't know when your night is coming. Right now it's day. And while it is day, you must work the works of him who sent you. You must work the works of the Great Commission. You must go about bringing the gospel, training your children in the gospel, teaching others the truth of the gospel and seeing that they walk with the Christ who is the sum and substance of the gospel. The night is coming when no one can work. And so we, like these people in Peter's day, have received the truth. The question is, what are we doing with the truth? Are we seeking to know it and walk in the freedom that it brings? Are we seeking to establish ourselves deeper in it? Or are we content with just a a superficial surface knowledge of the truth to be able to have, you know, to quote uh, a a common Bible verse as the, the highlight of your life. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or are you, or are you actually invested in studying the whole context of those four chapters of Philippians so that you can be able to tell someone this is the whole message of Philippians and it's glorious. This is the message of Hebrews. Jesus is better than the angels, better than Moses, better than everything, better than the sacrificial system, better than the priesthood. And you, believer, have a standing in the grace of Jesus Christ. And you have the boldness to be able to approach the Father through the sacrifice of Christ. Do you understand a few verses here and there in Hebrews? Or do you understand the whole message as a whole? That's that's being established in the truth. Now, How can we establish ourselves in the truth? I want to give you five recommendations on how you can establish yourself in the truth. Number one, by delighting in and meditating upon the truth. By delighting in and meditating on the truth. This is the message of Psalm 1, isn't it? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Delight and meditation. And the result of that is he becomes like a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, the man of God, the woman of God, delighting in and meditating upon the word becomes fruitful and prospers. That's the first thing you can do to establish yourself in the truth. Secondly, By listening to sound preaching. By listening to sound preaching. 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. You see, when we are exhorted from the word of God, that brings about an establishment in us spiritually. We need to be exhorted faithfully, biblically, from the scriptures. Be exhorted week in and week out by sound preaching, because that is what establishes us. And that's exactly what Paul knew, which is why he sent Timothy. He knew that the church there in Thessalonica would be established as they were exhorted in the truth. Which is why, by the way, we should take heed how we hear when we are gathering together on Sunday mornings. We should take heed how we hear. And even before that, we have to say it today. We need to take heed that we hear. In other words, Jesus in his day said, take heed how you hear. Because he was before the crowds all the time. We sadly today have to tell Christians, take heed that you hear. In other words, that you come to church. That you do not forsake the assembling of the saints when they gather together. This implies that you're connected to a local church where the truth is being preached week in and week out. This implies that if your attendance is sloppy, you're not going to be a very established Christian. You're in and out. There's no seriousness. There's no consistency that goes against God's design to have you sitting under the exhortation of God's word so that you are established in the truth. If your attendance is sloppy, your life is going to be sloppy. Church should be the last thing you cancel. The first thing you look forward to and the last thing you cancel. I guarantee you many people who cancel on Sunday mornings aren't going to cancel the lunch plans, aren't going to cancel the movie plans, aren't going to cancel the work plans for next, the next day. I'm not saying to come to church when you're like all sick and and not well, I'm just saying it should, it should be the last thing on your mind. This is, this is not Justin's hour. This is not Grace Community's hour. This is God's hour to speak to his people from the scriptures to see to it that you are established in your faith and bearing fruit in your faith. So delighting in and meditating on the word of God, listening to sound preaching. Thirdly, if you want to establish yourself in your faith, you need to be devoted to a life of prayer. Our Lord Jesus taught this, right? When you pray. Well, Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. You see, Paul understood that the means through which the church would be established was through prayer, which is why he says, May God bring this about. Fourthly, how can you establish yourself in the truth? By submitting yourself to the sovereign hand of God in all your sufferings. By submitting yourself to the sovereign hand of God in all of your sufferings. This is the message of Peter in his last letter. Chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then he goes on in that same context in verse 10 and says, And after you have suffered a while, a little while, the God of all grace will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen, and establish you. 
You see, in Peter's mind, if you want to be established, if you want to be established, you need to submit yourself to the sovereign hand of God in all of your sufferings. Not try to get out of every trial, not get out of every suffering, but submitting yourself to the sovereign hand of God, committing yourself to him, humbling yourself. And in all of that, God says, you will be established. And fifthly and lastly, if you want to see yourself established in the faith, in the truth, you need to be looking forward to seeing Christ face to face. You need to be looking forward to seeing Christ face to face. James in chapter five says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of our Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Listen, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You see, the establishment happens in the context of expecting to see Christ face to face. We should be looking for his appearing, longing for his appearing, praying for his appearing. There are some people who would have you think that it's selfish for you to pray, Lord Jesus, come. So the Bible ends on a selfish note of the Apostle John. Come, Lord Jesus, come. No, friends, we should long for his coming. And when we long for that, we establish our hearts in the truth of Christ. And so the night is coming, friends, when no one can work. The day is at hand right now. The day is at hand. I want to conclude with Romans chapter 13, verse 12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. We have to look carefully then how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, just like Peter here. Peter had a sense of purpose. He knew what he was called to do. He had a sense of kindness. He knew how he was going to go about it. He had a sense of urgency. He knew that his time was limited and he knew that he had a concern for the future of the church. And so he did everything he could do while he had life, while he had breath to ensure that the church could have this body of truth to come back to after his exodus out of this world just like we are to do. David prayed in Psalm 71, even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Psalm 145 verse four, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. That's exactly what Peter's doing here. And so I think Peter, much like, C.T. Studd would say this to us this morning. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave 
and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would have a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee.